0: Let's get into the, to the sermon. 1 Corinthians, if you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. We're going to be there in a minute. Just put, open it up. Hold your... Uh, just put your finger there. This sermon and this series. So this sermon... Gospel cult sermon series and the theme of our year, gospel culture, has been greatly influenced by a paper that our pastoral team read by Ray Ortland called "How to Build a Gospel Culture." It's also been greatly influenced by a sermon that I heard preached in 2008, and I just went back and read within the last few months by Mike Bullmore gospel culture. As we get started, I want to define some terms. So if you're a note taker, it would be good for you to write these down. If you're not, you can catch the podcast or look at it later because these terms are important. They're not going to be on the screen, so you got to listen. Okay? Gospel. What's the gospel? Simple definition. I love simple definitions, don't you? I love things that are boiled down to the lowest common denominator. What's the gospel? All that God did in Jesus to save us. Mm Mm-hmm. You with me? That's a good thing. All that God did in Jesus to save us. Now, what's a culture? What's a culture? Just a basic, simple definition of culture. The characteristic features of everyday experience shared by people in a particular place and a particular time. I'll say it again. The characteristic features of everyday experience that's shared by a particular people in a particular place and time. Two more terms. Gospel doctrine. When we talk about doctrine, what do we mean? Gospel doctrine. Gospel doctrine is the biblical message of grace for the undeserving. The biblical message of God's grace for the undeserving. God, through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, rescues all of his people from the wrath of God into peace with God and a promise of full restoration all to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen? Do you understand what I'm saying? Because if you understand what I'm saying, it ought to produce a little more than I'm hearing. This is, this is gospel doctrine. So what, So gospel doctrine is the biblical message of God's grace for the undeserving. Let me just get, get it all straight, get it straight with all of you. You're all undeserving. And if you are a Christian, it is because of God's grace towards you. Gospel culture. What is it? It's the shared experience of God's grace for the undeserving. That means that we get excited about the grace of God that has come to us as individuals, but we're experiencing it together as a culture, as a community. So what this means is the gospel message should shape everything about us. Everything. It should shape our relationships, So that when people walk into Brandywine Grace, there's a way in which the gospel feels. There's a tone. There's a vibe. There are values. There's honesty. There's freedom. There's humility. There's gratitude. There's joy. All of these things we're experiencing together, which is our culture, are shaped by the gospel. Gospel doctrine is something to believe. Gospel culture is the shared embodiment of that belief. Gospel doctrine is what we say. Gospel culture is what we are. Now here's why this is crucially important. Because it's possible to sincerely believe something and not have it embody your behavior. I saw a picture, a troubling picture, a picture of a Ku Klux Klan meeting where all the members were standing on the stage. Guess where the meeting was held? In a church. A Ku Klux Klan meeting in the church. All these people gathered, and behind them, on the wall, was this phrase, Jesus saves. It's possible to sincerely preach the doctrine, gospel doctrine, while simultaneously utterly denying the doctrine by an ugly anti-gospel culture. You with me? It's possible for a church to have the words gospel littered all over the walls. To have the words gospel littered all over the website. But not have a culture that has been thoroughly transformed by the gospel they believe. And that's the problem that Paul was dealing with in his first letter to the Corinthian church. If you know, I'm not going to get into all of this, but if you know anything about the Corinthian church, they were a mess. And Paul's letter to the Corinthians is incredibly relevant for, I believe, any church because it's relevant when it comes to living the gospel life in the church as a body, when it comes to actually walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's easier said than done. We can check the box, we believe it, but will we live it? Paul's purpose for the church in Corinth is that this church would be distinct in the world. Do you want to be distinct in the world? We should want that. We don't become distinct in the world by trying to be like the world. We become distinct in the world by living out the message of the gospel. So 1 Corinthians is all about gospel permeation. It's all about gospel saturation. It's all about the gospel permeating every area, every dimension, every part of our life life as a church, so that the resulting effect is transformation. So remember when Paul said in Romans 12, don't be conformed. Don't be formed to the pattern of this world, but be formed by the gospel. The renewing of your mind that comes through the gospel. And it seems like the book, this entire letter, is all about the challenge that the church, this church in particular, the church in Corinth, but our church right here in Downingtown, faces to live like the church in the middle of an amazing momentum of a of cultural pressure, social pressure, and moral pressure to be just like the world. That pressure is, is, we're feeling that pressure, church. It presses on you. Culture presses on you in ways that you don't even realize because it's the air that you breathe. And I see a lot of parallels between Brandywine Grace and the struggle of this church because we too, like Corinth, have a hard time living distinctive in the world. The church in Corinth was a worldly place. It was a successful place. It was a happening place. It was the place to be. It was an attractive center of business, activity. People had money. They had sports. They had culture. They had technology. It sounds a lot like Chester County. It sounds a lot like Downingtown. It was a great place for the spread of the gospel. I believe. That's why we're doing Easter service in Kerr Park. I believe that right where we are is a great place for the spread of the gospel. But it's also a challenging place. Because the patterns and the momentum and the rhythm of the culture is so strong that even after choosing to, be, to, to respond to the grace of God in the gospel and to follow Jesus, there's still this pressure to be conformed to the patterns of the world around you. Now, no doubt the gospel had come. Paul had come to Corinth. He stayed there and he preached. He resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. And he preached the message of the gospel. And many people came to Jesus. This is a room full of hundreds of people that have come to Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel. But for many in the church, for the Corinthian believers, they were still under the influence of a worldly way of thinking. We are all, to some degree, under the influence of a worldly way of thinking. You can't help it because you're shaped by the culture that you live in. The Corinthians, though they knew the gospel and could articulate the gospel, had a problem. They hadn't allowed the gospel to permeate everything about them. They hadn't allowed the gospel to open up every door in their lives. They hadn't allowed the gospel to be applied to very important areas of their life. They weren't making the connections. They weren't opening up the doors. And so what Paul sets out to do is open up some doors. If you know anything about the, the letter, you'll, you'll understand the reference that I make here. Paul said these things. Do you see this, d- these divisions in the church? Do you see these cliques in the church? Do you see division into status groups in the church? That looks like the world. That needs to be transformed by the power of the gospel. Do you see this casual attitude towards sexual immorality? Mm. That looks like the world. It needs to be transformed by the power of the gospel. Do you see this kind of fighting amongst one another where you're actually hauling one another off to court? That looks like the world. It needs to be transformed by the power of the gospel. Do you see that when you gather together, whether on Sunday mornings in worship or in missional community groups, do you see this lack of love and emphasis on gifts? And a de-emphasis on love. Do you know what, church? That looks like the world. And it needs to be transformed by the power of the gospel. This is why Paul is writing this letter. And what Paul is saying to them is what God is saying to us, what I'm preaching to us, that there must be a thorough penetration of the gospel into every aspect of our lives. Who's with me? You want that? You say you want it. That's going to mean change. Do we want that? Do we really want the gospel to permeate everything about us? Aren't there doors where we're saying, Jesus, you can have all of this, but that door's mine. Gospel going to seep under that door. Gospel wants to get through and penetrate and permeate every aspect of our lives. Let's read the scripture, 9 verses, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 9, and I'll be making my points right from this passage. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our attitude at Brandywine Grace should be one of purposefulness. Everything gets reconsidered in the light of the gospel. Everything gets recalibrated in the light of the gospel. Every aspect of life gets run through the transforming power of the gospel. So Paul, he's doing a series. I don't think he called it gospel culture, but we're calling it gospel culture. But he had the same mission that we have. He's he's got this gospel project Gospel Culture Project in Corinth, and it begins with reminding them of who they are. Notice something this church has all kinds of problems, and that's not why I chose this passage because I believe we have all kinds of problems. We have problems because you're here and I'm here. We have problems. But notice something, in this church that's got a a lot of things happening that aren't pleasing to the Lord, he doesn't begin where we would begin, where I would begin if I were Paul. He doesn't begin with judgment. Now judgment, he's going to bring it. He's got some judgment. It's going to be all over this letter. He doesn't begin with a correction. Now he's going to correct. He doesn't even begin, church, really with instruction he begins with a reminder. A clear, calm, weighty reminder. And he begins with this reminder because it's Paul's conviction that it's the reminder of truth that will shape their behavior. The reminder of truth, Paul believes, this is a biblical conviction, that it's their identity that shapes their behavior. Their identity in Christ is the ground that they need to stand on. Our identity in Christ is the ground that we need to stand on. So if we're going to build a gospel culture here at Brandywine Grace, it begins with remembering who you are. When our kids were teenagers, we used to say this a lot. Remember who you are, especially to our kids who were professing Christ. What do we mean by that? What we meant by that is like before they went out onto the athletic field, before they went out to practice, before they went out to their games, before they went out to their musical performances, before they went out to hang out with their friends, before they went to do anything, we would regularly say, as we said goodbye, remember who you are. Why? Why'd we say that? Because your identity shapes your behavior. We wanted them to behave in a way that would reflect, certainly well upon Amy and me, But even more importantly, we wanted them to reflect the, 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 the gospel which they had decided to believe and to, to follow Jesus. And so if you are a follower of Christ, then your behavior is going to follow that. Why? Because identity shapes behavior. Am I making sense? Identity shapes behavior. And so here we have these three aspects that Paul provides that inform our identity as Christians. In this passage right here that we just read, there are these three aspects that Paul is calling the body of believers to remember about themselves. Three aspects that God has given us so that we can remember who we are. So you're asking this question, who am I? Three aspects. Number one, I am called by the will of God. I am called by the will of God. So let's get this first aspect of our identity straight. Let's, let's, let's nail this down. First, you are recipients of the saving call of God. You have to remember this. You got to keep this front and center. You got to remember that if you are a Christian, your salvation began with the call of God. He has savingly called you. Look at it. It's all over this text. Verse one, Paul called by the will of God. So this is not incredibly creative on my part. I I just said, I am called by the will of God. I just took it right, right there. It's verbatim. Verse two, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, what's it say, church, called to be saints. Then look at verse nine, where he ended, where I ended, reading, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's right there, called by the will of God. I am called by the will of God. Now, big word that Paul uses here, sanctified. Sanctified in Christ. When we use the term sanctification, usually in church circles, like if you're real theological, we talk about justification and we talk about justification or sanctification. Um, And if you don't know what those words mean, I'm just so glad you're here and you don't need to know what those words mean. You ought to learn those words by hanging out with us for a little while. Not because we're big on theological terminology, but on what's behind the words. But when we use the term sanctification, what we usually mean is the ongoing process of life change where Christians become more and more like Jesus. That's what we typically mean when we talk about being sanctified. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about a process. He's actually talking about something decisive. Something that happened, definitive, past tense. It's already taken place in your life. You have been. If you're in Christ, you've been sanctified. What does that mean? You've been set apart. Underneath the lifelong process of change, of sanctification, is this decisive thing that happened. And it happened because of the call of God. God called. You were called by God. My dad raised hunting dogs my whole life. And he was really good with training hunting dogs. A lot harder to do than you might think. But my dad called his hunting dogs in a way that would be striking if I, if I could play a YouTube video. You would just be like, what is he doing? So I want to do my best to mimic it. So you had these beagles, you turn them loose, they're all running all over the, the woods in the field, but you need to be able to get their attention and you need dogs that will be somewhat obedient to you or you won't have a very good time hunting. So what he would do is something like this. Yeah, 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 Then he would insert their names. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Get him here, star. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yo, yo, yeah, 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 yeah. Get him here, girl. Now, what's amazing is that if you tried that with my my dad's dogs, they could care less. But when my dad called... Yeah, 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 yeah. They came running. When the Master called the dogs, they came running. When the Master called you or calls you, you'll come running. Now I ask you, Christian, who took... The initiative in your salvation. Could it be more clear? You're more like the dog in the illustration, right? You you want to be the dog in this illustration. Your salvation is God's initiative. Your salvation is the result of God calling you. And his call wasn't just some kind of general loosey Goose invitation. I hope they come. Like God wondering if you're going to hear it or not. It was a divine summons. It was an effective call. And it brings about a complete change in who you are. It wakes sinners up from the sleep of death it brings you from death to life in one moment everything changed who i was got washed away when god called me the call of god changes you it converts you the call of god has brought about a fundamental change in your identity You were lost, now you're found. You were blind, now you see. This is who you are, and God is the one who has done it. You have been set apart by the call of God. Set apart, called to be saints. There's a lot more I could say about this, but a lot of us misunderstand the word saints here. The word saints in Greek is the same root word as sanctified. So when the Bible uses the word saint, it's not a reference to Saint Teresa. It's not a reference to saint to Peter, St. Catherine Drexel, St. Joseph. Saint is not some rank of Christian. As if, it, as if there's like us, ordinary old Christians and saints. The word saints that he's using here is synonymous with being a Christian called by the will of God, set apart. So now, let's just remember, we're talking about this I- aspect of our identity. Who am I? I'm called by the will of God. You can say that. I am called by the will of God. Say it. Now, why is that important? Why is that important? It's important because identity shapes your behavior. So what kind of behavior should we expect to, to result at, from someone who is called by the will of God? Because clarity regarding your identity shapes our behavior. Get clarity on what you are, and your behavior will follow. So we should ask, what behavior will follow this idea of being called by God? It's something called holiness. God wants his people to be holy. He wants us, as his called ones, to reflect his holiness more and more. So the church here in Corinth was to look a lot less like Corinth and more like God's people in Corinth. They were to shine like lights in the midst of a dark and broken world. So, what's that mean for us? We are supposed to look a lot less like Chester County, like Downingtown, like a suburb of Philadelphia, and more like God's people in Downingtown, in Chester County in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Do you see this, church? In our behavior, in our purity, in our speech, in our dependability, in our generosity, in our humility, in our gratitude. We look different because our identity has changed. All of this is grounded in remembering who we are. Who am I? I am saved. I am sanctified because I am called by the will of God. You with me? Stay with me, church. So I need a few more minutes. We're called by the will of God. Number two, we're enriched by the grace of God. And I'm taking that right from the scripture as well. He's reminding the Corinthian church to remember that they are enriched by the grace of God. So you see this. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God Verse 4, that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way, verse 5, you were enriched. It's right there. You're called by the will of God. You're enriched by the grace of God. Now, don't pass over some important words. He says you are called for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Those three words, Sam, in Christ Jesus. Do you know the value of those words? You don't? Or you would get really hype. <laughs> Everything comes from God. Every good thing that you have experienced, beginning with salvation, and every good gift that has followed is given to you in Christ Jesus. We have redemption by his blood in Christ Jesus. We have experienced salvation from God in Christ Jesus. We were sealed by God with the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. We once were far off, but we've been brought near in Christ Jesus. Jesus. We've been forgiven our sins in Christ Jesus. We have an eternal inheritance in Christ Jesus. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All you have is because you're in Christ Jesus. Any good that this church was experiencing was because of the enriching grace of God. And according to Paul, they were rich. They weren't lacking in any spiritual gift. They were all jacked up in how they were using the spiritual gifts, but they weren't lacking in them. Why? Because of the enriching grace of God poured out towards them, to them. But the Corinthians had a big problem. What'd they do? They took the grace of God for granted. The result? You know what the result is when you take things for granted? You take the grace of God for granted? You become proud. You become arrogant. You become puffed up. You begin to think more highly of yourself than you ought. And that's the problem with the Corinthian church. They thought highly of themselves because of their gifts. And I wish that they were alone. I wish that somehow this verse didn't include me. Because I get puffed up. I forget. It's like the default setting of our souls is to forget grace. And to get puffed up thinking that we somehow contributed something or earned it in some way. It's the subtle default of our hearts. So we need to be reminded on the regular that all we are, all we have, all the good that we're enjoying, all the gifts that are, that are present in this church, it's all from God. So we got to remember this, BGC. We got to remember who we are. Well, who are we? I'm enriched by the grace of God. Why is that important to remember? Because identity, your identity shapes your behavior. And so if you are enriched by the grace of God, what behavior should follow? What behavior, what, what, how would your identity shape your behavior? Because if you get clarity on what you are, your behavior will follow. Well, what should follow from being enriched by the grace of God? We ought to be humble. We ought to be, there ought to be humility. Is there humility? Humility. When you live puffed up, thinking more highly of yourself than you should, you are suffering from spiritual amnesia. But when you remember who you are, enriched by the grace of God, then you will be humble. That's why we're going to unpack our core values as a a church in this series beginning next week with Christ-centeredness. One of our values will be humility because grace intends to produce humility. And humility attracts the attention of the world all around us, desperate for humility because the world is proud. You want to be different? Be humble. You want to be humble? Remember who you are, enriched by the grace of God. All right, let's keep going. I know I got a lot here for you guys today. My throat's getting sore. (laughs) Remember who you are. I am called by the will of God. I am enriched by the grace of God. And I am sustained by the faithfulness of God. This is who you are. You get up tomorrow tomorrow morning and you rehearse these things before you begin your day. This is who I am. I'm called by the will of God. I'm enriched by the grace of God. And I am sustained by the faithfulness of God. Look at verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, who will, a reference to Jesus, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. How's he going to sustain you? Verse 9, because God is faithful. Now, there's a word that jumps off the page here. Even when I read it this morning, I highlighted it, if you were listening. It's to stain you to the end guiltless. (laughs) Really? Man, I'm looking at you. I looked in the mirror this morning. And guiltless wasn't the word I would have used to describe myself. Who with me? And this church that he's writing to, they ain't guiltless. Paul, throughout the letter, pronounces them guilty. Two verses later, verse 11, It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers, guilty. Later, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Guilty. Chapter 6. They're hauling one another off the court. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Guilty. More scathing rebuke, But in the following instructions, I don't commend you. Because you, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Dang. I don't want Paul to say that about us. You guys all gathered together this morning, and it would have been better for you to stay in bed. Dang, Paul. What he's saying is guilty. So how can Paul say guiltless? We could survey our church and discover the scheme. Viewed porn this week, guilty. Angry outbursts, guilty. Complaining, guilty. Worked in your own strength and didn't trust God, guilty. Judged someone else, guilty. Wasted your time in laziness, guilty. Do I need to go on? You feeling it? So this is the question. How can God use the word guiltless to describe you? He can say that because God has begun a work in us that he has promised to complete. God is faithful. He will do it. God's going to finish the work he began in you so that the result will be your being guiltless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's going to keep you to the end. God's going to sustain you to the end. God's going to cause you to persevere. God will bring the work he's begun in you to completion. You see the argument he makes. God is faithful. This is going to happen because of God's faithfulness, not your faithfulness. God is faithful, whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. God, who has called you, is obligated... By his own faithfulness to sustain and bring you to the end. And his work is going to be fully accomplished in you. <laughs> See the smile on my face? That makes me smile. He is going to finish the work he began in you. Some of you needed to hear that this morning. You needed to hear that because you feel like you've, you've, you're further back than you were when you even started this thing. And God wants you to know that he you are. I am sustained by the faithfulness of God. He is going to see you guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what should that produce? Remember, clarity about our identity, shapes, our behavior. So what should this truth, that I'm sustained by the faithfulness of God, produce in you? It ought to produce faith. It ought to produce confidence in God. That even though I've taken a step back, I'm forgiven in the blood of Christ, and I'm going to keep going because God is faithful and I'm being sustained by that faithfulness today. Oh, Church. You remember? Now you can wonder what I was doing with this. <laughs> Sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. Remember that simple little experiment in school? Chemistry 101? The teacher held up this beaker of water, and then they slowly began to drop some food coloring. It was usually blue. Let me see if I can do this right. Now, if that works like it did last night. (laughs) Didn't happen all at once. It took a few minutes. But eventually, there won't be any part Of that beaker that is untouched by that blue coloring. No corner of that beaker is gonna be left unaffected by a few drops of blue food coloring. Nothing remained untouched. Church, that's a picture of gospel permeation. You see it? God desires every part of our lives to be colored by the gospel. God desires that every part of our lives be filled with the fragrance of the gospel. So that no matter where we go in this church, no matter what door we open, no matter what Circumstance we're facing, we can say with confidence that the gospel has been there with its transforming power. Amen? That's what I mean when I say gospel culture. It's what's happening right here. The gospel's so permeating every nook, every cranny, every crevice, every crack in our lives being transformed. By the, by the power of the gospel. Now this week, I was just talking about my sermon. I just got on the, on, on the phone. I was on the phone with Gabe. And Gabe and I like to talk about God's word and the gospel. And I was, my, I was in my office talking to Gabe about my sermon. I was a significant distance from my wife who was at work. While Gabe and I were having this conversation, she texted me, "Why are you shouting?" And then it was a little emoji with heart eyes. So it was said; it was an endearing question. But she was like, "Why? Why are you shouting?" And I answered, "Because I'm talking to Gabe." But what I'm talking to Gabe about has got me animated. I'm talking about the gospel's transforming effect in us. And I couldn't help. Now, some people get animated in different ways. When I get excited, I get loud. Maybe when you get excited, you get quiet. Whatever the effect is, the gospel, it's transforming effect in us should get us excited about what God is doing in us. Amen? And that all begins with remembering who we are. I'm called by the will of God. I'm I'm enriched by the grace of God. I'm sustained by the faithfulness of God. And that's getting me hype because my identity shapes my behavior. Amen? Amen? Amen.